Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, it's my pleasure to have my, as my guest, Ian Brody, creator of the Value-Based Marketing Blueprint. He specializes in helping consultants, coaches, and professionals attract more clients, and he's the best-selling author of Email Persuasion. Ian, would you mind giving a quick introduction to who you are and how you got to where you are today? Certainly, Marcus. I came from a very technical background, so I did a maths degree, and because when you do maths degrees, that doesn't really qualify you for very much, I ended up working in IT, in uh, R&D. So these days, we call it operating systems, like Windows and Mac OS, but then it was mainframes, and I was working on systems to help them fix themselves, which sounds very sci-fi, but it isn't really. But I did well enough that uh, my company thought, this guy could well be a manager or a leader in our firm, let's send him on an MBA. And when I went on the MBA, I discovered that actually I wasn't really very interested in management and I wasn't all that good at it. But what I really was interested in and seemed to have a bit of a talent for was the kind of thinking side of things, the business strategy, marketing strategy. After the MBA, I quit, um, joined a big consulting firm, spent the next 13 years working for a couple of big firms, traveling the world, working for large corporates and advising them on business strategy, marketing strategy, that kind of stuff. And then in 2007, I'd kind of had enough of the travel and wanted to actually see my family uh, rather more. So <laughs> gave that up, set up at home, and with the initial idea of doing similar work, but locally in the northwest of England, found out pretty soon that there aren't very many large corporates who are interested in business strategy and marketing strategy based within five miles of my house. So I'm going to have to do something different. And then I realized that what I'd learned to do in all my consulting career, as well as the, the work I was doing with clients, is I'd learned how to market and sell consultancy services. So I just started teaching other people who were like me, so lawyers, accountants, consultants, coaches, people who were professionals but weren't naturals at marketing and selling, didn't do it full-time, started teaching them how to do it and how to do it effectively so you bring on board clients. And I've been doing that ever since. And after a few years, I transitioned from doing it locally to doing it online. And all my work is online these days. Okay, excellent. Well, two things. First of all, my daughter's considering doing a maths degree. So I may have to edit that bit out. Um, <laughs> just to pick up on one thing, just to be absolutely clear to anyone who thinks there is such a thing as a natural born salesperson, no one pops out of their mother's womb able to sell. You have to learn it. I would argue that some people naturally find it easier than others. That said, the people who find it easy, I think, are a very small percentage point. <laughs> Absolutely. And the reality is that selling is really about learning to get on with people and learning to diagnose their problem. So the majority of really good salespeople are very good questioners and outstanding listeners, and they have high degrees of empathy. So if you lack empathy, much like being a torturer, funnily enough, I was told, if you can't understand the pain someone's going through, it's very difficult to talk to them. Same thing with selling, because you have to understand the situation they found themselves in. I'm curious about that, actually. So let's start with that. How important is empathy as a marketeer? Well, I suppose it depends on what you mean by empathy. I'd probably broaden that and say, in, in marketing, the most important factor is your understanding of your clients. You know, really deeply understanding their problems, their challenges, their goals, their aspirations, how that impacts them personally, how that impacts their business, what causes those problems and challenges. So not just a surface understanding. So in my business, you know, the, the surface problem my clients have is they don't have enough clients. 
But if you just based your marketing around going around saying, I can help you get more clients, you know, that doesn't really hit anywhere. You know, yeah, of course, of course I don't. But why? I'm struggling. I don't understand. I'm trying all this. I've tried what you're saying. I'm not getting anywhere. So really understanding why things are happening, really understanding the emotions and the feelings that results in, because people tend to end up working with and hang around with people who are like them and who understand them in a certain sense. If you haven't got that, if your communications in your marketing don't sound like you really understand them, and as I say, not just from the rational level, but you don't understand what they're going through, people don't react to that marketing. They don't respond. Understood. I interviewed a pal of mine, Chris Murray, very recently, and he has this wonderful concept, Saudade, which comes from Portuguese. And there's no direct translation. I suppose the closest translation is missingness. You know something should exist, but it doesn't. And it's something that you long for. And mm. I think that's what great marketeers, great salespeople are able to hone in on. And that's how I would describe empathy in what we do. Would that be a fair summary of um, I think so, yeah. You kind you of see, see, you see you see that gap, you're able to articulate it. You know, if you're able to describe someone's problems to them better than they can themselves, that tells them that you understand them enough to be able to help them. I think people are kind of intuitively smart as well. Certainly, I remember doing a lot of work with corporates and clients understood, they didn't necessarily articulate it, but they understood that the problem they had, if it was a big problem, the solution, when you went in to do your proposals and your pitch and you, you answered the RFP, clients, the good clients, the smart ones, the, the ones really succeeding, understood that the solution you proposed at the start would inevitably change during the program you did with them because no one has all the right information and understanding right at the start Absolutely. of a project. It's inevitably going to change. So if you've got a brilliant solution, but you don't seem to understand their real problem, then they're going to feel uncomfortable with that. If you have shown you completely understand as much as possible and empathize with their actual problem and their challenge, then even if your solution doesn't look as polished and as good as the other person's, you will still win because underneath they understand that because you understand them, you'll be able to adapt the solution as you go along based on this understanding and this emerging understanding of what the real issue is. Whereas the person with a brilliant solution who doesn't understand won't, they'll just stick with that brilliant solution, which turns out isn't a great fit at all. It's very interesting in the States, obviously doctors have to carry very high liability insurance. Mm. And upon qualification, the insurance company sends someone along to observe your bedside manner. Yes. If you have a good bedside manner, your premium is low. If you have a bad bedside manner, even if you are technically fantastic, your premium is high because you will be sued. One of the rules that we teach in Sandler is the problem the prospect brings you is never the real problem. If they knew what the real problem was, they'd probably already have fixed it. Mm -hmm. And so what they tend to do is they either bring you symptoms or they bring you nirvana. They don't bring the pithy bit in the middle, which is why they have the problem, what the cause is. And they don't bring the how to fix it. And that's what they come to us for. They sometimes also bring the flavor of the month. So there's so much noise out there about Facebook advertising is the answer to all marketing issues that often people will just go, oh, right, I want yeah. to do Facebook advertising then. And it's completely disconnected to their problem. <laughs> Absolutely. It's like, um, you know, in, in my world, sales enablement. These technologies are utterly brilliant. I mean, they are genuinely fantastic, but only if you have salespeople who can sell. 
if you haven't taught them the basics, then basically you may as well set your money on light or buy lottery tickets. <laughs> uh, you'd have a better return. Tell me, what is value-based marketing? Okay, well, value-based marketing is really, it's based on three challenges that I faced personally in my work when I was learning to market and sell and that my clients face a lot. And those challenges are firstly, actually getting people's attention. So these days, as everyone is aware, we're all bombarded with tons and tons of information, a lot of it marketing related, and we filter the vast majority of it out. So the first challenge is how do you actually get through to people? How do you get their attention? How do you maintain their attention? The second challenge then is how do you build credibility and trust? And I think that's a little bit to do with the difference between selling you know, something like a washing machine and selling something like sales training or a two million pound piece of manufacturing equipment. So if you're selling a washing machine, people are going to kind of read the reviews and they're going to, based on those reviews and the description of the machine, they're going to trust that a washing machine is going to wash clothes and it's going to kind of do what it says on the tin. But if you're selling sales training, there's a good chance they've done lots of sales training before or the team has done lots of sales training before. Probably it hasn't resulted in them all becoming superstar salespeople. That's why they're still looking for it. So they're going to be questioning it. They're going to be thinking, will this really work? Are you going to be able to do this with my team? Am I going to be able to, you know, is my team capable of doing this? So you're going to need to build credibility and trust before they're going to be ready to buy, which is different to when people buy something small. So how do you, how do you solve that challenge? And then the final challenge, which I think is a little bit more specific to my audience of consultants and coaches and professionals, is that how do you do marketing when you're just a normal person, when you don't spend all your time doing marketing or sales, when you're not very experienced in it, you're quite uncomfortable with it. You probably think it's something that's very pushy and uncomfortable and and you don't really like doing so. And the answer to all of those three challenges, I think, lies in the concept of giving value in your marketing. So most marketing, and there's nothing wrong with most marketing, but most marketing is all about promising value. So with the washing machine, here's what you'll get. You'll get nice clean clothes if you buy this washing machine. You'll have, live a lovely life if you buy this house. You'll look really cool to all your friends if you buy this iPad, that kind of thing. It's all promising what you will get, the benefits you will get when you buy the product, which is great and that does work. But with value-based marketing, what you're doing is you're trying to give value in your marketing itself. You know, a wonderful example of that comes from David Ogilvy. So Ogilvy was the founder of Ogilvy and Mather, the huge advertising agency now called Ogilvy One, I think. King of Madison yeah. Avenue in the 60s, 70s, et cetera. Most people will know him. And Ogilvy's famous for, you know, the Rolls-Royce advert, for soap and all that kind of stuff. But when Ogilvy wanted to get clients, he would do what he called house ads. And a house ad for Ogilvy was they'd take out a full page in a magazine that their senior clients would be reading and they would promote the services of their agency. But unlike other advertising agencies, instead of saying, you know, here are the wonderful results you'll get if you hire our agency or some fancy picture or image or testimonials or anything like that, they would put useful information in the ad. So all Ogilvy's ads were things like how to write advertising that sells, how to launch a new product, how to do TV and radio advertising. He would write the ad so that it was lots and lots of details. I think the, how to, the original how to do advertising that sells advert was, I think, about 50 points their best ideas on how to do good advertising, then the call to action at the end of it was to get in contact and they would share face-to-face more of their secrets about how you do good advertising. And it was very different to what other people were doing. And the key thing was, it was valuable. So executives would, you know, involved in marketing, advertising, or buying it, would rip that out of the magazine and they'd pin it up. They'd read it. They'd get interested in it. And if you think about the situation today where it's even worse, where people's 
just bombarded with its stuff, something that is actually valuable stands out. I mean, that's just the way we're hardwired. We're hardwired to look out for things that are dangerous to us or that are potentially really beneficial to us. You know, we look out for tigers in the bushes or sources of food, for example, or sources of a mate, and we spot those automatically. So if we see something that's valuable to us, it really stands out and we pay attention to it. So giving value in your marketing, not just promising value, but giving it in your marketing means people are going to pay attention to it. And of course, it's also going to build credibility and trust. If you're giving people useful stuff, it proves you know what you're talking about. If they take that useful stuff and they try it and they get good results from it, it's proof that when they buy your stuff, they're going to get even better results from it, much more so than any claims you could make about how wonderful it would be to work with you or any testimonials, because everybody's got testimonials, et cetera. So it's, it's proof. It gives you credibility and it builds trust too, because you're starting off your relationship by giving rather than taking. And then the final thing is, again, coming back to this yeah. thing about people like my audience and me who are not that comfortable doing marketing and don't do it full time. If you are giving value to people, if you're being useful with your marketing, you tend to feel good about it. So if you think about networking or sharing on social media, I do not feel fantastic about posting something up saying, come and work with me. I'm great. I don't feel fantastic about posting testimonials up with kind of humble brags. Oh, it's wonderful to have got this great feedback from people when really everyone knows you're just trying to drum up business and you're only sharing it to show off and to show people you're good. On the other hand, if I share something that I think is genuinely useful and valuable to people, a blog post or an idea on LinkedIn that I think they could take and use and be useful to them, I'm really happy to post that. I feel good about it. And so I'm going to do it. So if you give value in your marketing, it gets people's attention. It builds the credibility and trust that you need to for them to be ready to buy. And because you feel comfortable doing it, you're actually going to do it, even if you don't feel comfortable with other forms of marketing. That's really interesting. I absolutely agree. I learned uh, over the last 15, 16 years and moved away from talking about what we do and giving real life examples and trying to put a context around it. So one of the things that I found really helpful are dialogues between me and a prospect or a sales manager and a salesperson or the sales manager and the CEO or the channel manager and their partner. And contextualizing a problem that they're having, mm. taking them through that journey of experience and having some form of value add as an attachment, either a video or a PowerPoint or an article. And my coach told me some time back, you, know, you can't give away enough. And I think one of the lessons we were in Canada, we've always taught, no free consulting. But the reality is you can give everything away. They're not going to have the context of being able to do it with the nuance of the live training. That's why if I look at online training, it's great in terms of giving you the basics, but being able to test it and play with it and use it in a real life context with Get another human being, which is where you want to apply, that's where the value add is. And my pal Fraser Hay has this model, KDI, knowledge, direction, implementation. And every time you move from K to D to I, the decimal point moves because the value increases. And in doing that, by giving away masses of really valuable information, both he and I have built our businesses with comparatively little actual effort by pounding the streets, pounding the phones. And you know, you're lucky to squeeze two hours of your work out of me in any given working day. And I'm proud of that. <laughs> you need to use your energy 
in a really focused manner. But when I market, I'm trying to get my message out to my audience in a way that's really going to help them. And I think trying to prove your expertise tends to get you viewed as being one of many. Demonstrating your value by helping them help themselves. And bear in mind, a little knowledge is dangerous. They'll use it and they'll get some result, which only you can provide. Yes, I think the important thing is as well to, you've got to do it strategically. So you can do things in a way that, if I use, for example, a traditional sales meeting, in a traditional sales meeting, you're kind of asking questions Mm. to help diagnose a problem for a client. You can do that in a way where you ask various questions, you're kind of diagnosing the problem, you're talking about the impact, you use your spin or whatever methodology you use, you talk to them about the impact of it. You can either use that in a way where you come out with all the information and then you propose a solution and they're left none the wiser other than they've got a big problem and you've got a solution for it. Or you can use it in a way where they learn from the process as well and they get insights and they get light bulb moments and they go, oh God, that's why it's happening. Oh, I understand now. Of course, yes. Oh, right, right. I've got it. I've got it. And it's just a very different spin on the same thing. You're questioning, you're diagnosing, you're proposing. But in one sense, they're left none the wiser and you just say, here's the answer. In the other sense, they learn so much. They, they get a light bulb. And they and I think that latter sense, firstly, of add, adding value to them. But secondly, I think it's much more convincing. I think they're much more likely to go with you if they have a light bulb moment in there where not only do you appear to know the answer, but they get it. They begin to get it. They'll never get it fully because they don't have your experience and knowledge, but they begin to get it. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think most people question to gather information. Some question a little bit more deeply to gain understanding, but the best questioners, the best salespeople, the best marketing delivers insight through the questions. Yeah. And that's where your credibility comes from. Exactly. The questions that you ask, not the information that you give. Because when they're answering the question and they have that light bulb moment, that becomes their data and they never argue with their own data. When you help them rip the scales from their eyes and they suddenly for the first time realize, ah, that's why it's happening, then that offers them a glimmer of hope. And that's really, I think, the power in good selling and good marketing. Indeed. And if you think about marketing over the long term, you talked earlier about kind of giving information away or giving things away. And you... The other thing to do is think through, what do I give away that not only is enlightening and helpful to people, but also leads them towards working with me? So if you try and understand, going back to your original point about empathy, and you, you try and understand, as we said before, the problems, the challenges, the goals and aspirations, but also try and understand what would they need to believe? What would they need to know and feel to be ready to hire me? And some of those beliefs might be around if they're really in the early stages, that they've actually got a problem. It might be that this problem is solvable. They might not think it's solvable. It might be the belief might be around their own capability. So if if you talk about sales training, maybe they're not confident that their team is actually capable of improving. And you maybe have to get, get them to believe that before they'd be ever willing to hire a sales trainer. And of course, then there are beliefs about you, about whether you'll get on with their team, whether your methodology is different to what they've tried before. So very often with sales training is, is a good example. Most organizations will have done a lot of sales training before and often it won't have worked. So somehow as you go through this process of marketing and showing them and giving value, you've also got to show them that the way you do things is very different. And that 
is why it might it might well work for them when other sales training hasn't worked before. So you've got to be strategic about how you offer value. It's not just throwing value at a wall and hoping something something will stick. It's strategically giving out value that also brings them closer to working with you. One of the things that I've learned the hard way is that I can't make myself the hero in the marketing. I have to make my prospect the hero in the marketing. So you help them realize that they can get through this adversity, that they can overcome their problem. Because certainly from the school of selling that I've come from, there's a very heavy emphasis on pain discovery. But you have to offer a glimmer of hope. And what people come to you because they want to change what's happening and they want to move to a better future. And your story has to take them through that. And you have to be the Sherpa. You have to be the Obi-Wan Kenobi. They then are the hero in that story. And you have to help them see themselves as able to fix it with your help. So I do have a question, which is, Mm -hmm. why is there so much truly awful marketing? (laughs) I spend my life on LinkedIn. And I'm constantly being bombarded by Chinese companies wanting to sell me x-ray machines and social media people trying to sell me the only way to get leads through the door. And all it does is switch me off. And again, I think one of the lessons that Dan Kennedy taught me was that the cost of true marketing, of free marketing, is all the people who will never do business with you. Why is there so much bad marketing around? And what's the impact? You told me you were going to ask this question in advance, and I immediately thought of LinkedIn as well. (laughs) It's my number one source for bad marketing. I think there are two reasons, actually. One is short-term thinking. So for people who know what they're doing, the reason smart people do bad marketing, I think, is or good marketers do bad marketing, is short-term pressure. So the reality is, for most of the stuff we sell it, you need time to build a relationship. Just going right back to the very basics, for most large purchases, 90, 95% of the time, people just aren't ready to buy at any given time. You know, these are infrequent purchases, so most people aren't ready to buy. So when you first come into contact with them, they're not ready to buy, but you've got them in front of you. So if you try to sell to them right then, they're immediately going to reject that message. So you've got the fact that most people aren't ready at any given time, which means that an actual sales message isn't appropriate. But short-term sales pressures, you need to get a sale in the next 30 days if you're being pressured to that. It doesn't leave you the opportunity to build a relationship. You have you only focus on selling a sales-focused marketing message. So the reason that a lot of marketing bounces off people and people don't like it isn't that the marketing itself is awful. It's just that it's not right for them. Let's take this example of someone trying to sell. I forget, what were those Chinese folks trying to sell you? X-ray machines. X-ray machines. So that message is obviously the wrong, the wrong, you're the wrong person at the wrong time. But if that message, it's the way spam works, if they send it out to enough people, eventually it's going to hit someone who is the right person at the right time, and that gets them a sale. And given that the incremental cost of sending out spam messages is zero, it pays off for them. So the reason there's so much bad marketing is they can get away with it, I suspect, over the long term, because eventually they'll hit enough people. Now, nowadays, the the good thing from our perspective being on the receiving end is spam filters are much better. Unfortunately, LinkedIn spam filters are not great. That's why spam has switched from email to LinkedIn. It's because we don't have spam filters on LinkedIn. But we will soon. I have no doubt that LinkedIn will get a lot better at cutting down on spam sales messages, et cetera. 
So the first thing is short-term pressure is causing people to try and sell in their marketing directly, even though 90-odd percent of the people receiving that message aren't ready to buy yet. If you look at LinkedIn, LinkedIn is particularly bad because people tend to connect indiscriminately, which means if they do put a message out that might be appropriate for their ideal clients, it's also going to all their other connections who it's not appropriate for. So again, wrong message in front of the wrong person. But the other reason why is, is I think just lack of knowledge, lack of understanding. And again, LinkedIn, great example. Most of the people you're connected with on LinkedIn are probably kind of prospects. They're not professional marketing people. And if you are not a professional marketing person, or even if you are, most of the marketing you're exposed to tends to be sales-oriented. You'll see adverts on TV. And adverts on TV or in magazines are, tend to be there to sell to people. And if you're not an experienced buyer in a business-to-business environment, you won't have experienced someone trying to build a proper relationship with you over time and add value to you over time so that you know you won't have been partnered with by a McKinsey partner who spent a couple of years building a relationship and becoming your trusted advisor. You won't know what that's like. So you tend to replicate bad marketing because it's the only marketing you've ever seen. So I think if people don't understand the need to build a relationship over time because people aren't ready to buy, and that there are other ways other than just sales pitches, then you tend to get them replicating what they've seen, and it is an awful mess. LinkedIn's probably the worst for that. You see less of it on Facebook because you're connected to your friends and you don't want to, you know, you wouldn't put those messages in front of your friends. Why are you putting them in front of your business connections? But but people do. And you don't tend to see it on paid media because if you do it on paid media, you're going to tend to lose a lot of money. So what makes great marketing great? I mean, you've touched on the David Ogilvy example. Mm. What are the qualities, the characteristics of great marketing? I think there's a, a wide variety and there are different types of marketing. So I'm not claiming that value-based marketing is the only way to do marketing. It's absolutely not. And it's particularly suitable for business to business and for services. So there are other forms of great marketing. But I think a common characteristics, great marketing does get people's attention and it holds their attention. So Ogilvy's ad held people's attention because it was useful, because it had value. But if you think of a kind of consumer ads and consumer marketing, that tends to hold people's attention because it's entertaining. So if you think in the UK of the John Lewis Christmas advert every year, people tune in to watch that because it's always really well done. Sometimes it splits opinion, but you'll always get a large number of people kind of sobbing at the end of the John Lewis Christmas ad because of the message it sends. And they remember John Lewis and they think better of John Lewis and they might go into John Lewis more frequently as a result. So it gets people's attention. And then it addresses beliefs, I think, is the key thing. So I talked about credibility and trust, which are some of the key beliefs people need to have to be ready to buy a service from you or or a big item. But beliefs are also about, I need this. I really want this. This will make, you know, this is possible for me to do. This is a good thing for me to do. My friends will think more highly of me. So whatever it is they're trying to market, if they've understood what it is people need to believe to be ready to buy it, then the marketing will touch on those beliefs. And then finally, I think, going back to my point from earlier, it's got to be doable. Whoever it is who's doing the marketing has to be able to do it. So it's no good. And a classic of this is, you know, my audience, full-time consultants, full-time coaches, and they're very frequently told they need to buy a course on Facebook advertising. And the reality is Facebook advertising is 10 times as competitive as when the courses were written. It's really quite technical. You have to spend quite a bit of money to learn, and you're in competition with all the other people who are good at it. 
So my people who've got maybe a few hours a day at most to do marketing are never going to get good enough at Facebook advertising to make it really work for them. So it, it's a good advertising medium, but it's not right for them. It's not, not the right marketing for them because they're never going to be able to do it. So it has to be achievable for whoever's doing that marketing. Fair points all. Okay, so how do you measure the value of marketing? Oh, it's really hard, isn't it? Overall, you would measure something like the lifetime value of your client base and, and watch that grow, but that takes forever. It's not going to give you stuff you, you can act on. So I think the important thing to do is to split down, to understand what you're trying to achieve with any given piece of marketing and to set objectives for that and to measure that. So if you think of the different sorts of marketing, there is some marketing you do, which is all about converting someone who you've got a relationship with. So if you think of email marketing and you build a relationship with someone over time via email, and you've reached the point where they're ready to buy something from you and you run a marketing campaign to sell a product or if it was in your case, it might be to get them on a, on a phone call with you so that you'd be able to talk to them and, uh, and get them to buy a, a sales training program. The measure of that is, is sales. But earlier on, if you're looking to generate leads, then the measure is more about how many qualified leads you generate. Or if in the middle, if you're looking to build relationships, the measure may be something more related to engagement and getting people to interact with you and talk to you and speak to you and build a relationship with you. So it really depends on where you are and what, what the objective of an individual campaign is. And I think if you try and use one measure for marketing to cover all those different things, you're going to run into trouble because it's probably going to end up being sales, which means you're going to focus all your marketing on just the marketing that's very sales oriented, and you're going to miss out on all the vital marketing that's to do with building relationships and generating leads. I think if you're just going to record sales, then that's a lag indicator. And yes. while it's useful to know what you've done, it's not giving you any good indication of what you need to adjust in order to improve. And Al Tepper talks about measuring buzz, which is the subsurface contact and engagement that you have. You post a piece of content and someone spontaneously contacts you that says, let's talk. It's not on the thread. It's not the vanity metrics of like, shares, or comments. Mm. It's they actually take some action. You touched on something that I'm really interested to explore a bit further, which is how marketing might be able to help in the middle of the funnel. So you've got the lead. You've had some form of contact. And I think an area that is woefully underserved with marketing is that middle of the funnel bit. While you're going through the qualification and creating further engagement because if someone's involved in a sales cycle with you odds are that they're going to be checking out your content as you're going through the buying cycle and i'm curious in terms of what advice you would give to accelerate and also improve the experience that prospects have in the middle of the funnel that is a really good question i would definitely agree that's probably the most underexplored area of marketing because obviously there's a lot of attention on things that get direct sales. There's a lot of attention on lead generation, possibly because it's easy to measure. Oh, I've got 500 new email addresses. I've got 25 new contacts on LinkedIn or whatever. But that yeah. thing of taking someone who you're already in contact with and getting them closer to being ready to buy is harder to measure. So I think there are a couple of keys here. And my experience, I'm going to talk primarily about being related to marketing online and marketing with smaller businesses, but you can extrapolate, I think, the same principles to larger businesses, et cetera. So if someone, if someone joins you know, my email list or something like that, 
or any email list, and you've got a variety of services. So I think the first thing is to understand what kind of business you're in and what it is that will convert someone over to buying. And in certain types of businesses, people are going to buy online. So for me, people will buy stuff online. People will press a button and will buy something from me. For most businesses and for most people I'm speaking to, they won't do that because they're buying consulting or coaching or a training course. And that usually involves speaking to someone. So the first thing is to understand your goal is to get into a conversation with them usually about their particular problem or challenge. So that means that, you know, instead of the usual email marketing training on about automating everything and getting everyone to go to a sales page, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get them to have a conversation with you. What leads to people having a conversation with you face-to-face or over the phone, it's usually people having more conversations with you via email or chatting with you. So it usually involves is building engagement and building interaction. So what you're trying to do with your with your nurturing in this case is just to get people to respond, to get people to interact. So usually what I do is rather than just giving them more and more content and more and more information to go and look at passively, I will try and get people to interact more. So I'll ask them a question. And again, I'm talking about the use of email, but this could be face-to-face. It could be any other medium. But rather than kind of saying, here's an email with useful information, seven ways of, if you're a LinkedIn trainer, seven ways of improving your LinkedIn profile, you'd ask them a question. What do you think the number one thing you need to get right on your LinkedIn profile is. And if you're being a bit smart, I'll tell you in tomorrow's email, today, here's a, here's a little tip. And then, oh, I'm going to find tomorrow's email. But maybe you ask them to reply to that email and say what they think it is. Or maybe you ask them what their number one challenge is. Or maybe you give them a choice and you get them to click on three buttons. But the key thing is you're kind of conditioning people to respond and interact with you as if you were having a dialogue with them. And that's kind of the challenge when you have a a broader funnel and you're not just aiming at really high-level sales where you're talking to everyone personally. Where you're having to deal with people online or they're coming to your website, et cetera, or they're doing it on LinkedIn, the challenge is too often we're just trying to automate everything. So we give some information and we send them some more information, we send them some more. But really what you want to be doing is for the right people, you want to be increasing the amount of interaction you have with them. So... In a roundabout way, what I'm kind of saying is... Can that be automated or does that really need to be more personalized? I think it's a combination of both. I really think the secret is the combination of automation plus personal interaction. And automation can lead to personal interaction. So imagine if you don't quite know who your clients are, if you have a broad base and you're getting people to sign up to an email list and you've got a 1,000 people on that email list, there is no possible way you can reach out to all a 1,000 of them individually to try and start off a conversation. What you can do, though, is email all a 1,000 and ask them for their number one challenge. And maybe out of that, 50 of them will write back and tell you their number one challenge. And if that is something you can help with, you maybe give them some ideas and tips on that. Personally, oh, you know, I've, I've found that this, this, and this. Have you tried this? And ask them another question. Another 50, maybe 20 will write back and say, oh, yeah, I have tried that, but it didn't work. What about this? And you'll get into a real discussion with them. And maybe 10, you'll start really interacting with them. And then you say, you know what, how about we hop on a call and let's talk about this in more detail. So what you're doing is you're using email at the bottom of the funnel to pull more people in then using interaction and triggering response, you're trying to break away from it just being a pure email thing to get them to to actually interact with you. And then you'll maybe speak to them on the phone, maybe even meet face-to-face, et cetera. And obviously there's a smaller number of those, 
but you're making it a kind of interaction or an engagement funnel, not a purely send them loads of information. And maybe if we send them tons and tons and tons of information, they'll be ready to buy from us. It tends not to work that way. That might build some credibility, but it's not going to build the personal relationship you need. In all honesty, I tend to switch off if I get inundated. If the content is good, then it'll attract my attention, but it needs to be relevant and it needs to be timely. If I'm bombarded with emails, I get two to 500 emails a day. <laughs> so cutting through that noise, you have to have a phenomenal headline, which generally I don't experience. I struggle to see that working, unless you're working with large numbers on your list. I tend to work with maybe 20 clients a year. So I, certainly from my perspective, I'm not trying to pilot high, sell it cheap. I want to work with clients and they would typically, as an individual, be spending 20K plus per person. And if I'm working with corporates, they're spending anywhere between 100 and half a million a piece. Um, so I really don't want a lot of clients. Now, maybe I'm, I'm anomalous in this, so I'm speaking purely selfishly here. I think for the high-end, high-ticket, high-value, high-margin consultancy, it's really important to get personal as quickly as possible mm. um, and really focus on that individual. And if you're selling to an enterprise, each individual within the buying committee needs to be targeted. And your marketing goes from one to many to one to one very quickly. And you get them to volunteer themselves through asking the right kind of questions, creating the right kind of content that causes them to spontaneously engage. Then you can go through that relationship building and qualification process where you're asking questions that help them gain insight into their problem. So by the time you get them all together and you eventually meet them, then you've already got a quorum of people who are supporters and advocates of what you're offering. Any thoughts? Because a lot of my clients are dealing with high ticket. That's the first secret is to understand the different levels of market you're at. And I, I usually like to draw a kind of pyramid with three levels. And the top level is this kind of one-to-few or one-to-one -one type of marketing. And I typically call it the perfect 10. So let's say it's 10 for any individual. It's 10 perfect clients who are going to be for you. They don't have to be massive corporates. You know, if you're an individual consultant, even a smaller business can be a six-figure client for you. So, But it's a, a small number of clients you're going to hand-nurture your relationship with. Then at the bottom of the pile, you've got people you don't really know that well, but maybe they've come on your email list, they're connected with you on LinkedIn, and you're going to try and automate that as much as possible. And then in the middle, you've got a kind of middle ground where maybe it's, where you, a lot of people are probably familiar with Chet Holmes' Dream 100 concept of you don't necessarily know them that well, but you can see from the facts and figures you know about them, they could be a very good client. So you're going to run kind of standardized campaigns to them. But it's a kind of range of personalization from with the perfect 10 at the top you're sitting down every couple of weeks and thinking, for that individual, what can I do to build my relationship with them each week? Can I do something for the, this week? Can I you know, get on the phone and chat? Can I send them something I think they'll find useful? Can I invite them to an event? Can I introduce them to someone? Given what I know about them, what would be valuable for them? What would build our relationship this week or next week? And you're doing that on a regular basis. For the people in the middle, you maybe think about that once a month, once every couple of months. And if you run standardized marketing campaigns where maybe you're going to reach out to everyone on LinkedIn, you're 50 people or something, and you do a similar approach to them. And then the people at the bottom, you're automating. But don't overlook the connections between the two. So I just talked before about the people at the bottom, you don't know that there aren't really high value 
potential clients on there. You just don't know much about them. In fact, the chances are there are, but you're just not turning the the signing up to an email into a personal interaction. So if you can put out the feelers and put out the questions that push people up the pyramid, then you can get into personal interactions. And of course, it works the same in reverse. If you if you've got someone on your perfect ten list and you've thought about how to nurture your relationship, but they never respond, you push them down, and uh, and they just continue to get emails from you or something like that. But they but you're not dealing with them personally. So the first thing is to understand that. And then I think, yeah, absolutely. At that top level, it is a personalized marketing and sales campaign to win over that client with you know high investment. But you need to make that high investment to win them because it's a really high value thing. And at the lower end, it's low investment because you're automating as much as possible and the individual clients are much less value. So if, you, if you're a career coach, for example, where people only work with you temporarily because they obviously hopefully get a job after working with you and you maybe have 100, 200 clients every year, then you're not going to invest in trying to work a decision network because there isn't one. You're not going to spend hours and hours every day trying to win that one client because they're not worth enough to you. But at the higher levels with very senior people, you are. That makes a lot of sense. So it's about segmentation, really. It's a, it's, a lot, it's a lot about segmentation. Absolutely. And once you've segmented, then go on to LinkedIn if the list isn't too big and do searches and see who is likely to be responding to your content or to your marketing. And of course, don't just, don't just do things online. If they're in that perfect 10, I mean, I, um, I remember once, and I, I didn't use the terminology in the t- at the time, but when I was um, selling big consulting stuff, I flew to Geneva to bump into a potential client at a conference I knew he was going to be at. That's the kind of thing you do when clients are worth multiple millions to you. You really invest in it. At the lower levels, you don't. You're trying to automate everything. And one of the big mistakes I think people make is they get, they get them the wrong way around. They either overinvest in clients who, can't, who aren't going to be worth very much. I see this a lot with local coaches and consultants trying to do it, take a personal approach to someone who really is not going to spend more than a couple of thousand with them. And you see it in reverse, people trying to win multi-million dollar consulting contracts through email marketing. And that's not going to work unless you turn the email into a phone call, into a face-to-face meeting. So let's take this a little bit further. How can you use your marketing to improve the customer experience? They're already a customer. How can you use targeted marketing in order to improve the overall experience that customers have. Because once you've got them, you want to keep them. And if they have poor customer experience, then you're likely to lose them. I'm curious about that. I think the first thing is just have that mindset you've just said. My experience with the way investment is made in existing clients is that often we get it the wrong way around. We don't think about customer experience. We think about schmoozing to use a better word. So if I imagine it, you imagine a big consulting firm or a big accountancy firm with a big multi-million dollar client, and they think we need to invest in this client to make sure they keep hiring us. Typically what they do is they'll invest a certain amount of money in a partner's time, very expensive time, to come and have a meeting with the potential client, maybe take them out for dinner and have a chat. And the reality is the client very often, sometimes they value that, but very often they don't. Very often it's, oh God, do I have to go out to dinner with this guy? And oh, all he's doing is chatting. He doesn't really understand the project. He doesn't understand the work I'm doing. Often you would be much better off taking the same amount of money and time you're spending and getting a partner to schmooze a senior client into actually investing extra in the project or the work you're doing with them to over-deliver. 
So thinking about what would be, you know, so let's imagine you have an account team and instead of going, all right, we need to secure this client for next year. Let's bring a partner in to have a chat with them. Think, well, what would be all over delivery look like for this client? What would absolutely delight them on this project we're working with them on? When we do the next audit, what would blow their socks off if we did in addition to the normal work and invest in doing that instead of the whining and dining and that kind of stuff? And I think that comes back to your point about customer experience. Because I think a customer's experience is more about the value they get from working with you. Yes, it's to do with relationships and feeling as if you're valued, et cetera, and there's a relationship angle to it. But the most important thing is if they get brilliant results from working with you and they get more than they expected. So if you're doing sales training, but instead of just training the salespeople, then as a bonus, you do a little session with their receptionist to get them to answer the phone better, to create a great impression with potential customers who are calling in, then that's like to the client, that's, oh, wow, I'd not thought of that, but that really is making a difference. Thank you so much. That's a great experience for them. So thinking through, maybe sometimes it's a little bit out of the box, but what would help the client achieve their goals better that isn't you know, part of the stuff they're already paying for, that really helps with the customer experience. And I think also speed helps. But the reality is everything you do with your clients is marketing. Anything that touches the suspect, the prospect, the customer or the client is marketing. Absolutely. Sales is a subset of marketing. I think the danger with seeing something like sales as a subset of marketing is that you end up with territory wars. <laughs> I know what you mean. Absolutely, absolutely well, agree. I, but I think... absolutely shouldn't. There should be a continuum from your outreach and your branding and your lead generation through to the sales qualified or marketing qualified lead, sales qualified lead, through to the buying process, through to the decision, hand over to operations and customer success, through customer experience and all the way back again. And if there isn't that continuum, then the customer doesn't see one person or another as being not um, exactly sales or marketing. And if you miss that, you are losing money. You're giving the opportunity for the competition to come in and steal your lunch. This kind of artificial demarcations between I'm marketing, your sales, et cetera. And originally, it's one of the reasons why the idea of customer success was a good one, was, you know, we're all in the customer success business. Never mind whether we got a label as marketing or sales. Unfortunately, it became another department and it's yet another yeah. label to I'm customer success and I'm marketing and sales instead of understanding that everyone is in the job of making, you know, making this a success for the customer there, it became yet is, another label we applied to people. There is a really good argument to have sales and marketing report into customer success or customer mm. experience. I suspect it's some way off because whoever's in customer success or experience needs to learn how to play the political game to win. <laughs> but it makes a hell of a lot of sense. And if you don't do this, then you're in trouble. And Salesforce picked up on this some time ago and what they realized was that they were customers and they were winning. A lot of emphasis on customer success and made that the ethos upon which they based their sales and their marketing. And they've been a runaway success since. I think one of the secrets to that is realizing that marketing isn't just what we normally think of as marketing. Marketing isn't just advertising or speaking or working with customers before they become clients. It's realizing that investments in anything that helps a customer succeed at any part of the journey is good. And you know, if we stop using the word marketing or sales and just say, well, let's make let's let's help this customer succeed, where we do it on their journey before they've started paying us or after they've started paying us, we should put it into the bit that's going to help them succeed the most and be the most likely to cause them 
to want to keep working with us or to start working with us. That's where we should be investing, not here's a million pounds, we need to spend it on marketing, and that can only possibly go on stuff that happens before they become a customer. Because generally speaking, we do, most organizations do underinvest in their existing client base or their ex-client base is another one. Clients who've left you, I'm forever banging on about this, but clients who used to work with you or clients who nearly started working with you but didn't for one reason or another, we tend to then ignore them and walk away from them. And the reality is someone who's worked with you before, who's had great success, but who stopped working with you because you know that project was over or they moved on to other things, you already have huge credibility with them. You already have a great relationship. Stop ignoring them and start working with them about how you could do other things for them. Or people who nearly hired you but didn't, stop assuming that they now hate you because they didn't hire you and they hired someone else, or they didn't do anything at all, which is usually the case. Maybe the timing wasn't right and the timing's right now. Maybe they had a problem with budget, but they've got the budget now. Maybe the organization's changed a little bit and they're ready to go ahead. Stop ignoring them and just focusing on these cold leads. I can't remember where I read it, but the number stuck in my head. It used to be that people would say that it costs six to nine times more to sell to a new customer than an existing. Now the numbers that I read were 12 to 25 Mm. times more. Wouldn't surprise me. If you have any sense, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to sheet of paper, you're going to turn it into quadrants, and in the top left, you're going to write the word keep, top right, attain, bottom right, recapture, bottom left, expand. And in the middle, you're going to put an oval with the word sack. And those are the counts that you want to get rid of because they're a pain in the ass. They're difficult. They're late payers. They penny pinch. They make your life a misery. Fire them. It'll do you an enormous amount of good and refer them because what does your enemy harm does you good. Then what I would do is the accounts that really have no growth potential, but as long as you look after them, they're good bread and butter accounts and put those into keep. Attain are the target new logo accounts that you want to win. Then bottom right is recapture. These are accounts that you may have lost due to inaction, inability. You may have dropped the ball, go back and apologize, or you were outsold. All the projects simply came to an end and there was nothing there, but you could revisit them. And then expand. Expand is the one that you should spend 75 to 80% of your time selling more of the same, something different, something similar but different and continue to grow that account because it costs you a fraction to sell to those guys. I would also look at organic growth within the business. That's your expand. Your partnerships and alliances within your target account. So partners, JVs, joint sales partners, those all represent an opportunity for you to sell to. Look at their subsidiaries, their family tree, parent companies, industry trade groups. Look at alumni. So people who used to work at your current client and now they've gone somewhere else, maybe they'll be interested in buying your products or services. And also look at the customer's customer. These are all absolutely opportunity-laden sources of new business for you or the ability to expand your relationship. Any thoughts? That's all excellent. The thing I would say was also take that thinking into your strategizing initially. So when you are thinking about who you should target as a client, make sure they have the expansion potential that you've just talked about in those quadrants. So there are some clients and also some types of work you could be doing. It goes right back to thinking about you know, what is it I should be offering the marketplace. There are some types of work that kind of come to an end and there's nowhere to go after them. I used to work for a consulting firm that we really specialized in business transformation. And the whole thing was you do it once and you're set for the next five years, next 10 years. 
which was great because we got big projects, but it never offered much expansion potential beyond because the whole premise of it was you're done now. So think about what you offer and also who you're offering it to. So you just said there, you know, expanding to other divisions, expanding to partners, et cetera. So make sure you're targeting people who have that. Make sure you're targeting organizations with multiple divisions. So you do it for one and you can get an easy internal referral to another division to do the same thing rather than just a single division company where once you've done it, there's no more to be done. So if you think about that up front, it's going to really make it easier for you downstream. My co-author, David Davies and I, that's exactly what we've done. We've identified an opportunity in channel sales, working with the vendors and then operating throughout their entire partner ecosystem and looking at their supply chain, looking at their partners, their alliances, their joint ventures. And the opportunity there is massive, which means that maybe we need six to eight customers, probably eight would be the ideal, and work within that entire ecosystem and work with them over a period of many years to help them scale at 200% year on year per annum in order to ensure that they go from tens of millions to hundreds or even a billion over the next five to eight years. Now, if you can think of a way to ride that kind of horse, then you have long-term business and there's intrinsic value in what you do, which creates an asset base because you've got a forward order book that might last for three to five years. Mm. And that's incredibly valuable if you're trying to build a business. It does require you to be a little bit brave early on and not yeah. just take any old business that comes your way because it, you know, it requires you to think, no, actually, I'm going to go for this type of business, but it really pays off long-term. What you say no to matters a lot more than what you say yes mm. to. And not just saying no to bad things, saying yeah. no to good things that don't that have expansion opportunities. Yeah. Absolutely. So just to wrap up then, what are you reading, listening to, watching that influence you at the moment? Blogs, podcasts, books? I'm mainly a reader rather than a listener or a watcher, but I think it's important to read very widely or to experience things very widely because your best new ideas come from outside your okay. current field. So I'm reading comedy stuff. So I'm rereading yeah. Jeeves and Wooster. I'm right. reading Steve Martin's autobiography. Christmas is coming up. I'm going to get some kind of hardcore science book, maybe something about history, maybe even something about politics. So just to get different ideas. Obviously, I'm, I'm forever reading things about psychology because that's so influential in marketing. Within our field, stuff I've really found useful in the uh, recently, Captivology by Ben Parr, which is a kind of exploration of the science behind what gets people's attention and what keeps people's attention. There's some, I'm really enjoying stuff by Dave Trott, who's an old marketing guy, an advertising guy, trained with Bill Burnback, you know, the guy who did the Avis ad, you know, we're number oh, two, right, yeah, yeah. so we try all hard. that kind of stuff. Sorry? Yeah. We're number two, we try harder. Yeah, exactly. But also, he's the same guy behind all those Volkswagen adverts, you know, small is beautiful type thing. All right, yeah. What car does the guy who drives the snowplow drive? All that kind of stuff. <laughs> Burnback was behind that. Trott's a Brit who trained with him, then came over here and did things like the Hello Tosh, Got a Toshiba, Cadbury's right. cream egg ads, a lot of really creative ads. And he's got some really interesting things to say about getting people's attention and the use of creativity and things. I'm liking Eric Barker, who I found by accident because I pressed the wrong button on Amazon. But has <laughs> a lovely, he has a lovely book called <laughs> Barking Up the Wrong Tree. It's scientific-based wisdom for life, like how to bring up your kids better, how to stop yeah. looking at your phone so often, all that kind of stuff. Great email newsletter worth getting on. Richard Koch, who wrote The 8020 Principle, has a, another good email newsletter controversial, deep, don't always agree with him, but worth reading. James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, I've just finished because I think habits are one of the keys to marketing, especially yeah. when you're doing it yourself. 
if you can't make your marketing a habit, usually it doesn't get done because you get overwhelmed by by day-to-day work. So being able to establish the habits you want, I think is absolutely vital. Excellent book list. I'll share mine with you another time. So just to wrap up then, if you could go back with a golden ticket and advise the 23-year-old idiot Ian how to avoid a lifetime of misery, what advice would you give him? You know, I would give him very little advice because A, I've had a really good life (laughs) and I, I don't want to risk changing that. And B, I think you are the sum of your experiences. I don't think I'd be able to do what I do now had I not been really bad at sales initially, <laughs> really struggled with it. Had I not been awful, I wouldn't be teaching sales and marketing to people who, aren't, who don't feel comfortable with it. So if I hadn't made all those mistakes, if I hadn't nearly got fired early on, if I hadn't really struggled to bring in new clients until got lucky with various things and had good mentors, I don't think I'd, I'd be where I, where I am now. The only thing I would probably say to my 23-year-old self, I would probably say, in 10 years' time, <laughs> you are going to be thinking, should I continue being employed or should I set up my own business and just kind of follow my dream of, of setting up my own business? And instead of waiting another seven years till you're 40 and doing it, <laughs> do it now. You've got everything you need to do it now. And I think to make that advice more general, Often we have everything we need earlier than we think. We think we need to wait a bit. We need to gather more information. We need to, and actually we can move a lot faster than we think. And buy stock in Apple and Microsoft back in the 90s. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) Buy some Bitcoin (laughs) when it's one fee. Go through a bit of a slump. Excellent. Ian, thank you so much. This has been really enlightening. How can people get hold of you? Two ways. Get all of my generic stuff at www.ianbrody.com, which is just a regular source of tips, ideas, long articles about marketing if you're in services, if you're a consultant, a coach, etc. And for value-based marketing, particularly, just go to valuebasedmarketing.info, which is the hub for all of that. Brilliant. Ian, thank you very much. Really appreciate you coming on and sharing your thoughts and ideas. Real pleasure. Cheers. Excellent. So this is Marcus Cappy signing off. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, please get in touch. If you have questions for either Ian or myself, then ping them through in the comments, either here or on LinkedIn. And if you know somebody who you think would be a really good guest for me to have a conversation with, and you'd like to get their thoughts and insights around sales marketing channel or sales recruitment and management, then please drop me a line with their details, maybe connect us on LinkedIn. And if you think you'd be a good guest, then please drop me a line. That's Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. Bye-bye. Happy selling.